With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to episode 140 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, the one, the only, the great Dan Feinberg. Hi, Dan. I hope I'm the only. I like to think I'm unique, for better or for worse. You know. It's not necessarily a qualitative judgment, merely, merely about supply. That's all it is. <laughs> yes, I understand that. But you know what? I, I've been reading your stuff for years. I remember when one of the the first times that we, that we met, and I think it was at a press room at at uh, Comic Con after a particularly shitty Glee panel. And I've just been a fan of yours for a long time. So, <laughs> well, I'm a fan of yours too. But you're making this sound as if it's some sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, funeral valedictory, whatever it it's is. It's not. You know what? Look, I, I read your your tweet thread last night about <laughs> Chappelle, and I was just reminded yet again, as if I am every single time when we record, just how lucky I am to work with someone like you, Dan. So, Aww. thank you for being. You. I like to think have thought of it as a tweet thread on Ted Sarandos. Not so much Chappelle, but we're going to talk about that in our first segment. We didn't want to, but we're going to have to because whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we get to that, what do you say we dive into headlines? Yes. Let us dive. Leading off this week in headlines, Ted Lasso creator and two-time TV's top five guest, Bill Lawrence, has set his third show at Apple, reteaming with Emmy winner Brett Goldstein, you see what I did there, and Jason Segel for a comedy series called Shrinking with the latter set to star. Elsewhere, FX has picked up restaurant comedy The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White of Shameless fame. AMC has handed out series orders to a Walking Dead anthology called Tales of the Walking Dead. Netflix has renewed you. Yes, you. I'm talking to you. Oh, or alternatively, the stalker drama, which is about to premiere its uh, third season. I see what you did there. I'm, uh, no, mm. no, yeah, I bought that. <laughs> anyway, you renewed fourth season. Still pretty crappy for SEO. Oh, well. <laughs> Amazon <laughs> has picked up Jack Ryan for a fourth season ahead of its third season debut. And Stars has renewed Blind Spotting for a second season. You can listen to our terrific interview with Rafael Casal about his vision for building out the world of Blind Spotting back in episode 125 from June. And in news that should come as no surprise, Mark Harmon has officially left the NCIS building after an 18-year run. I first reported he was nearing his exit back in February when he was negotiating a, a deal to return in a limited capacity for season 19. His brief return for season 19 paved the way for CBS to actually renew the show because, as I had heard at the back at the beginning of the year, if he was going to leave, they didn't want to renew the show for more. So kept a lot of people employed there. Good job, Mark Harmon. In other casting news, the Crown Emmy nominee Emma Corrin will star in limited series Retreat from the creators of The OA on FX. On the overall deals front, A.D. Bryant has inked her first overall deal with SNL Universal Television, and former Blackish showrunner Kenny Smith has moved his deal from Disney's ABC signature to Universal TV. 
And wrapping up headlines with what is very likely to be the biggest story of next week, IATSE has set a Monday strike date for its 60,000 film and TV workers should a deal with the studios not come to fruition as talks continue to stall on a new deal which includes greater compensation from streaming projects, rest periods, meal breaks, and this seems like a big one, a living wage. A strike would shut down the film and television industry for the second time in as many years. And you can definitely follow THR's uh, labor genius, Katie Kilkenny, who was on our podcast a couple weeks ago and explained the basic stakes at THR.com slash labor. And rest assured, like I said, if this actually happens, I cannot imagine it not being our top story next week. Yes, and for more on on the issues on on the table here, go back and check out our tremendous guide to what's going on here with the great Katie Kilkenny from episode 137 from September 24th. And with headlines out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, we talked about it at the top of the show, but up first, the fallout from the controversial Dave Chappelle Netflix special continues. More than a 1,000 Netflix trans employees and allies are planning a virtual walkout protesting Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarando's repeated support of Chappelle and his latest special, The Closer. The walkout is slated for Wednesday, a day after Netflix reports its quarterly earnings. <sighs> Dan, what's interesting here is that Netflix and has yet to publicly comment on the backlash here. Instead, Ted Sarandos has issued two different memos to staff, the first to a smaller group and the second one more recently. And this is where it gets even worse. He kind of digging his hole a little bit deeper here. This one went to the full Netflix staff. And I'm going to read, well, it's not really brief, but I'm going to read a snippet from it. And I quote, with the closer, we understand that the concern is not about offensive to some content, but titles which could increase real-world harm, such as further marginalizing already marginalized groups, hate, violence, etc. Last year, we heard similar concerns about 365 days and violence against women. While some employees disagree, we have a strong belief that content on screen doesn't directly translate to real-world harm. The strongest evidence to support this is that violence on screens has grown hugely over the last 30 years, especially with first-party shooter games, and yet violent crime has fallen significantly in many countries. Adults can watch violence, assault, and abuse, or enjoy shocking stand-up comedy without it causing harm to others. Dan, like I said, there's two things going on here. The first is that Ted and Bella decided to actually put the special on the service despite concerns from staffers internally. And then the second is how Netflix is completely screwing up their response to this backlash. And like I said, Netflix has yet to publicly comment on this, but they've created, Ted, Ted has created a mess, especially with the second memo, like really the video game violence de defense. And you want to, you want to cite declining crime rates. Everyone was locked in their house for the better part of last year. Of course, crime ra rates fell. I don't know. That, that's just one. I, I'm angry, and I'm guessing you are too. If that, especially if your Twitter thread is any indication. I'm angry. I'm tired. I'm annoyed. Uh, you know, it's hard to necessarily put a label on what I'm feeling other than generally disheartened with many, many different colors. I have all the colors of the rainbow in my being disheartened. Regarding the Chappelle special, I really don't want to talk about 
about it. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think it is absolutely a thing that needs to be talked about. But in this, I stand with uh, TV's top five guest and Dear White People uh, co-showrunner Jacqueline Moore. And that's about all I have to say about it. Just interjecting really quick here, Dan. Jacqueline Moore did a great interview with The Hollywood Reporter's Chris Gardner about the special, and and you can read that over on THR.com. Absolutely. It is, it is nuanced, and, and I'm aware that the voices that need to be heard on this subject are not the voices of, uh, of straight, cis, white men. And so, you know, I, I don't think... I don't think it's my place. I think it's my place to stand with the people whose voices I believe in. Um, so my irritation is at this moment localized in the direction of Netflix executives and specifically Ted Sarandos and specifically anybody who had any part in allowing either of the two statements that Ted Sarandos sent out last week. And Yes, both were sent in emails to Netflix staffers, but given that the first made it to public and made it to the press within minutes or hours of it being sent, they had to know with certainty that the second one was going to as well. So it needed to be treated with all of the sanctity of a public statement or with all of the attributability and accountability of a public statement. And this statement was not that. Anybody at Netflix who allowed this statement to go out needs to have a serious examination of, of many, many different things. The use of the violence analogy is so reductive and so ignorant. And I say this not thinking that Ted Sarandos is an ignorant person. Ted Sarandos is a smart person who said an ignorant thing here. This is a reductive and banal piece of commentary. I happen to agree. Violence in video games and violence in movies, I do not think, cause violence in the real world. But the idea that harm is a one-size-fits-all all description is, again, it's ignorant, it's reductive, it's stupid, it doesn't mean anything. Harm comes in many different shapes and sizes in the same way that benefits come in many different shapes and sizes. And I think if you were to go to your friendly neighborhood press still archives to see the number of awards that Ted Sarandos has picked up in the past five years for Netflix things that people deemed to be progressive and positive, you would probably see it's a fairly large number. But you can't pretend that your content that is positive produces positive good and then say, oh, no, 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 our negative content should this count as it or not? Whatever. There's a lot of content. Obviously subjective. Obviously yeah. subjective. There's a lot of content on, on Netflix. And I'm just going to say some of it is probably of negative value or quality. Period. Full stop. Right. <laughs> you, you're right. You you know, just an, off the top of my head, 13 Reasons Why and the controversial suicide scene from season one. Right. They stood by it. They let it air for years and then wound up pulling it and, and removing it years after the show was relevant. Years after. I think it was after the show 
had even ended. I can't even remember. It might have been before the final season, but it didn't matter. By that point, the show was already kind of had come and gone. And they did. And they did early, earlier than that, did little tweaks to the key suicide scene in the first season. And and that is an example of something where I've had conversations with people who are in youth social work fields and psychology fields. And my initial reaction to the show was that its treatment of suicide was very, very careful and very, very thoughtful um, and nuanced. And then I had conversations with people who wanted to talk about the way that it was being received and perceived by young viewers in their experience. And, and some of them convinced me, you know, fairly persuasively that it was more complicated than the way I was looking at it, which was just the text is a nuanced thing. How the text is received is also a nuanced thing. But the number of ways in which positive things have positive impacts and negative things have negative impacts, they're roughly equal. So if you take something like Disclosure, a Netflix documentary about the trans community, you know, there's, there's no direct correlation or analogy between the violence, violence and what something like a Disclosure can do. What Disclosure did was allowed people who hadn't seen themselves on screen to feel seen and to feel humanized. And I don't think you can put a quantifiable value on that because it's so colossally valuable. On the same side, if people are telling you that a comedy routine making fun of or relying heavily on stereotypes involving the trans community makes them feel less than or dehumanized, that is harm, period, full stop. That is violence on an intellectual and psychological level, full stop. It is not the same as somebody watches a movie with a gun and goes and shoots someone. It's not, and you don't want to make the analogy between the two, but you want to understand that if you think that Netflix is a platform for good, and if you go and look at the press releases when they've signed overall deals with people like the Obamas, people like Harry and Meghan, the thing that those press releases emphasize over and over again is we see this platform as a voice, as a chance to do good. If, if you think it can do one, it can do the other. And attempting to pretend that it can't, and that's what this is. This is denial. That, to me, is repugnant. And it would be repugnant to me if I were a person in the creative community who saw Netflix as a platform and had to hear this. It would also be repugnant to me if I were a Netflix staffer and I was under the impression that I was working at a company that was trying to do good. This was just a bad statement. If Ted Sarandos wanted to put out a statement that said something along the lines of, and this is what the first one did, came closer to doing, was we believe in free speech. You're not going to believe, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to believe in everything that everyone on our platform says, but we believe in free speech and getting voices out there. Well, someone is going to say, does free speech extend to hurting people? And then it becomes a different conversation. But if that is what Ted Sarandos wants to say, he should say it. He should not deny the platform's potential impact, because otherwise, what are any of those people doing? If it is simply a volume business, a money business, then he wants to say that, too. He wants to say, look, 
if you don't like it, that's fine. Dave Chappelle's made us a lot of money and none of you have. So, you know, thanks for your effort. If you want to go work at IFC because you like their programming more, go do it. He's entitled to do that. He's smart enough to know he doesn't want to do that because that would look just horrible. But at least it's honest. This is just intellectually dishonest. And it sounds as if Netflix employees are not so much happy with the way that Ted Sarandos has been talking about what Netflix is doing and is capable of doing and wants to do as a corporate brand. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know that I, I have much more to say on this subject. What what talk a bit about what the blowback has been so far and, and what we're looking at in terms of actual tangible impacts on things. I mean, the blowback has been significant. I mean, it's basically been one of the top stories dominating the news cycle for the entire week, which is why it's leading off our show this week. But there has there ever been a, a, an employee walkout at Netflix before? But you, no, you haven't talked about the employee walkout yet. So let's let's talk. Or we haven't talked. Did I not talk I think, about I think that? you mentioned it. But I, but what do we yeah. what do we know about it is what I'm trying to say. What is what is happening? Well, it's more than a thousand employees, um, trans, not just trans employees, but allies. And, you know, obviously, you know, part of the backstory this week was that there was one specific uh, employee, a software engineer uh, named Tara Field or Feld, who w used her platform on Twitter to be to criticize Netflix for for the special and then went on, continued the thread with very moving tweets about trans people who had been killed. And it was probably one of the most powerful things that I've seen on, on Twitter in a long time. And she she and two other transgender employees at Netflix um, attended a virtual meeting that was designed for the top 500 employees of the company for which they were not invited. They were subsequently suspended for attending a meeting of which they were not invited and not suspended for their tw for the comments on Twitter, et cetera, but reinstated shortly thereafter. But to me, it's, you know, look, I talk a lot about Netflix and transparency as it pertains to ratings, but this is a case where you have three specific employees who felt so upset about what the content of the special and were so frustrated with the, the relative silence from executives that they crashed a meeting that they weren't invited to because they wanted to hear from their executives why this was the thing that they had to air. And to me, you know, look, you want to talk about transparency here? Here's why. Netflix has done, like I said, it's two internal memos. They've not yet publicly commented. Okay, so whoever, I don't know if whoever is writing these internal memos is only doing internal company stuff because if they don't want to do a larger interview or put out a public statement in response to, to the backlash, because, you know, like I said, there's there's two things going on here. You know, the first is the actual controversy and the second is their shitty response to it. And I'll call a spade a spade. It's a shitty response. And as a member of the LGBTQ community, I can tell you firsthand how powerful it is when you see yourself on TV for the first time. For me, that was in college when Ellen came out on her show, um, on her scripted comedy show, right? And there was backlash for her that, you know, she had career ramifications afterwards for years, right? Disney, you know, at the time the show aired on ABC, Disney lost advertisers because they aired the show. You know, it's like, you can't replace that feeling of feeling seen and how vital that is in art that helps change minds, right? I always go, you know, talk a lot about this a Harvey Milk quote that means a lot to me. And it's something that he said along the lines of, if they know us, they can't discriminate against us. Well, if you see discrimination or hatred in art, that has an effect too. And that's just going back to what you said, except you said it so much more eloquently than I ever could have. And I'm just going to let you, I, I, 
I'm not even going to try. So thank you, Dan, for speaking your, your mind and, and using your words for no, I, I, A, I don't think that's true. I think you said it very eloquently. And, and B, yeah, this, this goes back again. Ted Sarandos, not a stupid man. These two statements, memos, whatever you want to call them, bad, ignorant, stupid. And so the question is going to be, if you're Netflix and if you're Netflix's corporate PR team, what is the appropriate way to to fix this to because, you know, there's obviously right. But also keep in mind, they have earnings reporting. Oh. They're reporting their earnings on Tuesday. So are they going to pretend like this is not a thing that's been dominating national headlines? That would be that also would be a very bad idea. So there has to, there has to be some context in which Ted Sarandos is able to either do an interview or make a statement or whatever, which is, OK, look, this was not <laughs> what I meant to say. What I meant to say was dot, dot, dot. And whether anyone's going to believe that or not is something else. But because because also here's the thing. I don't really think it's what he meant to say. But in that particular case, somebody had to protect him from himself, whether it was him or someone in his sphere or whatever, because because, yeah, this this is bad. Look, you've you've already heard me uh say this because I, I mentioned it at a THR morning news meeting. To, to me, the second statement uh, was both, it was a combination of both built up defensiveness from stuff that you mentioned uh, from 365, from 13 Reasons Why Not, from last year's entirely in bad faith cuties scandal. They, they've gone through a lot of, not a you know, I don't think an untoward amount of controversy. I think if you look at the, again, Netflix is in the volume business. If you look at the volume of content Netflix has produced, I would say they have had controversy roughly in line with the amount of content that they've produced. Um, uh, to me, the introduction of the violence analogy into the conversation, which was like one of those memes uh, on Twitter where it's nobody colon blank space, Ted Sarandos, violence doesn't cause violence. Um, to me, that was somewhat preemptive because I think there are conversations about Squid Game that are going to be coming in the next weeks slash months because I'm already hearing very, very loose, sort of somewhat amused anecdotes about parents saying that their kids had been playing uh, red light, green light on the playground with a new twist. Um, you know, and ha ha ha, when you turn around and you get caught, you have to play dead. All it takes is for one very loud parent with a megaphone to hear that particular story and to decide that that's a stink they want to raise. And if that's the case, then, hey, Ted Sarandos, we already know what his comment is going to be on that one. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, just I'm just waiting for, you know, there's obviously the conservative watchdog group parents, uh, the Parents Television Council. I'm sure oh, they've, they've, no, that, that there's an email already. There, no, there's already that's already come. They, they've they wanted Netflix to put <laughs> more, you know, mature content labels or whatever around it. And I, you know, I, whatever it's that as such things go, I am a fan of the content label or a fan of the warning or whatever, much more than I'm a fan of deplatforming things or removing things, you know, a little note in advance. This is not for children, whether or not it has an actual impact. It's a, you know, it's, it's a thing that at least gets the point out there more clearly. I'm, I'm in favor of such things if necessary. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that there is a, a secondary 
controversy about that that's coming in the next couple of weeks that Ted Sarandos was getting out in front of and somehow managed to conflate two controversies that no person giving sufficient thought would have conflated. And so that I kind of wonder if that is the undertone to this is anticipating that people are going to be like, this is a show that that isn't directed at children, but the children are going to be interested in what are you doing about that fact? So he already has made it clear that he's, you know, that things don't cause things. And so whatever. Right. And and this controversy certainly hasn't caused any net, major Netflix talent to, to come out in support of the trans community at, at all. So radio silence from the likes of mega deals, producers like Ryan Murphy, Shonda Rhimes. And as you mentioned, the Obamas have a deal. Harry and Meghan have a deal. And we haven't heard word one. Nor from any of the LGBTQ uh, creators who uh, who have deals who are not you know, the, the Shondas are the ne- and the Ryan Murphys of, of the, the industry. So Chris Nee, obviously one of the biggest kids programming producers who's fo- used her career to fight for LGBTQ characters in kids programming because that makes a difference at such a young age. Also silence from her, too. Yeah, I, again, I don't know that it's for us to be saying which of the which of the creators need to need right. to put their voices out. It's, you know, right. And obviously few people want to bite the hand that feeds them. Outside of John Oliver, who does it pretty much routinely with AT&T. It is definitely a thing he does. And not everyone is not everyone has hand biting as part of their brand in the way that he does. Um, I, I am with you. I would like to see more people speaking out because I would like to see more people speaking out just about what they see this platform as being and what they see their role in the in the platform as being. And if this yeah. reflect- Janet Mock has a Netflix deal, we haven't heard from her yeah. either. And obviously there's some other things going on with her too. So Because if this reflects what you see your role in the Netflix brand being, then that's what it is. Uh, but I would, yeah, I would, I would like to see some comments, but I'm not going to call anyone out on the table about it. Well, that feels like enough for now. Um, obviously this is a, a developing story and we'll see, continue to cover it as it breaks and see how things go next week number two up second let's take a look at another hot button topic tv ratings joining us to take a look at how broadcast is faring a month into the new season is thr tv writer rick porter thanks so much for joining us rick happy to be here long time listener first time guest so leading off this week you know we saw FBI International and NCIS Hawaii become the first of the season's nine freshman shows to score additional episode orders at CBS, which handed out full season orders, although we have no idea just what a full season means anymore. Um, but one of the things that I'm, you know, when looking at the numbers, as you reported them, uh, NCIS Hawaii is averaging 9.3 million a week with seven days of delayed viewing, and FBI International is at 8.79 million with the same seven days. That a couple of years ago would have been a cancellation at CBS. So can you just take, you know, take a look from where you see you've been covering ratings longer than I've been doing this. And um, have you, how have you seen things change? What are the general tea leaves so far into the fall season? I mean, yeah, those, those numbers wouldn't have been anything to write home about uh, three, four five years ago, even, but this year they're pretty good. You know, NCIS Hawaii is the most watched of the new shows that have premiered so far in FBI international is second or third, I think. So it's, you know, that's only with a couple weeks in, but I don't 
think anything else is going to, in the freshman class at least, is going to get up to those those numbers even. Back in the day, when we were both doing this at Zap2 at 100 million years ago, it was possible to look at how a show had done within... 12 hours of its premiere, and you could go, okay, that's probably a hit. That's probably a failure. And then you'd get things like Lone Star that would be pulled after two episodes because the ratings were so low, ratings that we should emphasize Fox would have given the show a five-season renewal already with those numbers now. When you look at the first few weeks of the season, are there, are there hits? Are there failures? Or is do we just not play that game anymore? Yeah, where where's the line? Yeah, I it's a good question. I don't know that there even is a line anymore. Dan Dan coined the term Mulaney line back when John Mulaney had his Fox sitcom and that was a one rating in adults 80, 18 to 49 which was the the sort of key thing for ads. And there are maybe 10 shows above that right now. And that's obviously looking at the entire broadcast scripted landscape, not just new shows. Yeah, and not counting football, which is its own stratosphere. But, yeah. But, like, are are there failures? Are there things that look like they're disappointments? Or is broadcast television a disappointment and we just need to, re- <laughs> we need to reassign where the Mulaney line is to something much more precariously low? Yeah, I have stopped going back more than a year or two in terms of comparing ratings because... The way people watch TV has just changed so much, and not just because they're watching Netflix shows or HBO Max shows or whatever, but even for network shows, a good chunk of that audience, of a show's eventual audience, is going to come from streaming and not even from a DVR. So it's just, when you look at the, the overnight ratings, they look pathetic compared to what anybody who's been doing this for a while remembers, but... They're just, they're a less full picture than they've ever been. What have you been able to learn so far about the Live Plus 3 and the Live Plus 7? Because we're slowly beginning to add those to the equation. So is it as simple as everything's rising dramatically? Are some things getting more and less impact? I mean, that's always the case. A big show will stay big and, you know, a, a medium-sized or small show, they tend to rise sort of in proportion to where they start for the most part. So, but even that, like I was just looking for every show this in the first two weeks of this season has added about 1.3 million viewers. If the average for all shows from Sunday night football, which adds almost nothing because it's a live experience to NCIS, which gets like 4 million extra viewers a week. But that's, you know, Two years ago, which was the last regular season launch last year, was all screwed up because of the pandemic. Two years ago, that was over 1.7 million. So there are fewer people catching up via DVR. And, you know, we don't know how many people are catching up with streaming because nobody releases streaming metrics with any regularity. You know, the DVR is becoming a less a less used technology, I think. Yeah, so it's going the way of the VCR. And now that you mentioned the streaming ratings, obviously I've been very critical um, on the show and on social about these, you know, the quote unquote streaming ratings. But, you know, let's talk about Netflix for a second. They tweeted this week that Squid Game is now, and I quote, its biggest series launch ever, having reached, quote, 111 million fans. 
I don't know what a fan is in terms of ratings, but to me, that sounds like complete and total nonsense, considering they're counting two minutes as a view. So from someone, you know, like you, who's covered ratings for the, the central part of your career, what do you make of, of this, you know, word salad stuff? Uh, I don't like it. And that's why I don't cover it. You know, these, these piecemeal things, Netflix, at least there's some set of data to compare to. Like when they say Squid Game. But what's a fan? It's what you put in a tweet instead of saying a view in in Netflix metrics means a member account watching at least two minutes of a show or film. But I'm assuming they're using their same thing, their same measurement as they do for everything else. And, you know, they can't outright lie about it because they're a publicly traded company. But it doesn't really give you much of a whole picture of who, how many people are watching Squid Game. Right. Well, one of the things that I also wanted to talk about, too, is, you know, we've gotten some listener email um, uh, questioning what the Nielsen controversy means and what's going on there. Could you kind of break down what's what's at stake there and how that's impacting the fall season? Yeah. So broadcasters and advertisers got really upset at Nielsen for their likely undercounting of viewers during during the first part of the pandemic last year, because Typically, Nielsen goes out to the houses, the homes where it has, you know, its its meters and checks on them and makes sure the people who they gave them to still live there and things like that. That didn't happen as much during the pandemic. So the sample size shrank, which meant that networks and advertisers saying, you know, viewers were undercounted, which affects their ad rates. Practically, all that means nothing right now. Nielsen is still the currency of the business. Everybody's still using Nielsen ratings. What it could potentially mean is that people are more serious about finding other widely accepted measurement systems within the industry. Um, I don't think advertisers would want to deal with 16 different proprietary metrics from each media conglomerate. So who knows if that'll come to come to pass ever, but one thing I want to ask about going back to broadcast is there's been kind of a, a lot of backlash really probably in the past 10 or 15 years about the idea that scheduling doesn't matter anymore and lead-ins are irrelevant. And, you know, friend friend of the podcast, Preston Beckman, would make it clear if he were here right now in no uncertain terms that that's bullshit and that uh, lead-ins still matter and all of that. But one of the interesting trends of the scheduling year for me has been these these blocks, whether it's CBS's FBI night or, well, basically anytime you can combine multiple Dick Wolf shows in one thing. From what you can see, does it appear that that's a strategy that seems to be working, that seems to be sort of bringing in a, a steady audience on nights where there might be spiking otherwise? Yeah, it really does. Um, and I saw, I don't know whether it was actually Dick Wolf or somebody else commenting on that recently, but they said, well, you know, people will sit down and binge three hours worth of, you know, a streaming show. So if you give them three shows that are set in the same world and that share, you know, timelines and characters occasionally and stuff, they'll probably sit down and watch that, too. And it's it's borne out. The Chicago shows on NBC on Wednesday have been rock solid for however long, three or four years running, however long they've been all grouped together. And the FBI shows on CBS so far are doing the same thing. So, 
And wrapping up here, Rick, you know, looking at everything that you've seen so far from the fall season, is there one thing that really stands out that surprised you? Uh, I was surprised at how well Ghosts did with its premiere. It had, it did have a good lead in with Young Sheldon, but and it got good reviews. But it seems, it seemed like it was not a terribly CBS flavored show based on you know just watching the pilot. So I was surprised that that did well. I was also surprised at how well La Brea did and the fact that it hasn't really dropped off that much so far. I don't, I can't use any rating sinkhole puns yet. So, you know, that's been a little <laughs> bit of a bummer, but yeah, those are the two, the two things that have stood out for me so far. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Rick. And to follow along with Rick's ratings coverage, go to THR.com slash ratings. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Number three. Up third, in place of our usual showrunner spotlight, we're changing things up a little this week. Instead, we're joined by Sarah Snook, an Emmy nominee for her performance as Siobhan Shiv Roy on Succession. Snook's other credits include Predestination, The Dressmaker, and Pieces of a Woman. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So... Obviously, the COVID shutdowns led to a lengthy downtime between the second and third seasons of Succession. Now, when you have a show like this with language this distinctive and a cast energy this unique and you have a long time away, what are the aspects that are most challenging to get back into rhythm on? I think the, uh, I mean, long time away from anything, like away from your job, just hands down, coming back to it is a real like, oh, I've got to get back into gear. I've got to go from first to fifth all of a sudden. I think, uh, I think probably like the rhythms of, of the humor and the, the comedy and those kinds of things, they're all just like, they're in the writing. And, and, and most of it, to be honest, is getting out of the way of yourself, just, just uh, allowing yourself to stand and listen and be there and, and do your job, uh, but that's the hardest thing to allow yourself to do sometimes. So are you able to do that on day one or are you, does it take like a week before you're like, okay, now I'm back in a succession mind frame? Yeah. I mean, it takes a, it takes a little while. It takes about a week or so, uh, or even longer, but then at some point you look back and go, Oh, I've, I'm doing it. <laughs> I've been riding the bike. I didn't realize by myself, you know? <laughs> and what was the succession cast group chat like during the pandemic, during quarantine? It was great. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's really, I, I really appreciate being able to be, you know, because uh, I live in Australia or I'm, you know, away from everybody else for most of the year that uh, we can have a group chat that um, keeps us all connected and lots of silly memes and, and, and uh, text messages go back and forth. 
it's um there's a similarity I would say to to um the characters and the way they jive with each other onto uh onto the thread so so are you guys following the the no context succession twitter account and for all of its glory have you heard about that one no I we haven't no but uh sometimes Jay Jay will update us on on a few of the uh the succession things every so often but uh I haven't got that one yet I have to imagine that sharing a succession meme on a succession group chat is a little bit like wearing the T-shirt of the band that you're going to a concert to. You probably don't want to do that, right? <laughs> yes, but however, the um, catering company we had, Rolling Table, they gave us all succession T-shirts and and uh, jumpers, and but like crafty Rolling Table uh, branded and themed. And I love that one. I, I wear that all the time. It's just like, <laughs> it's sort of like you know, secret succession somehow. <laughs> but wearing um, the I, one with my own face on it, I'm only going to do that to bed when there's nothing left. <laughs> um, I do want to talk about season three um, a little bit. Obviously not a lot of spoilers since uh, we're ahead of the premiere here, but the season does pick up in the aftermath of Kendall's big bombshell. And again, taking taking Logan on um, for in a battle for the company. But how would you say Kendall's bombshell impacts Shiv this season? I mean, it really, it really rocks the family and it certainly rocks Shiv as well. It, there's something that, uh, there's something frustrating again about like the behavior of her brothers that she's got to clean up and she's got to work out, you know, where her alliances lie. Does she go with her dad? Does she go with Kendall? Does she like, who does she back here? Where is the, where is the power and where is the, um, where is the, uh, the right place to be in this moment? And uh, I think that's the trajectory for Shiv this season. One of the things I find most enjoyable about the show is that characters often seem to be very different people depending on who they happen to be sharing screens or, you know, a scene with. Are you able to sort of feel and understand at this point how Shiv is different depending on which person she's with and how you're different as an actor depending on who you're paired with? Uh, I mean, I I just rely on the writing in that sense to uh, to sort of uh, indicate or um, give me the the right uh, signposts of where where to be heading with that. My my favorite character for that though I think is uh, definitely Tom. You know he's he's such a um, uh, <laughs> him with Tom and Greg is is such a unique relationship. But then seeing that Tom and then seeing uh, the Tom with Shiv. You would say that they're different people, except that Matthew was such a skillful actor that you totally believe it. And there was a day on set I remember once where, like, man, Tom just bullies Greg. That is just like he's just a big bully. That's what he's doing. He's a big bully. Well, then, oh, he must be bullied by somebody who, oh, <laughs> oh <shit>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously. Like, okay, well, then she must be bullied by somebody. I'm like, oh, well, Logan. Okay, so, well, it just continues down the thread, doesn't it? <laughs> well. I mean, Shiv and Tom are always in a precarious place relationship-wise, and the second season finale makes things only more precarious. How has your understanding of that relationship changed over the three years that you guys have been doing it? Like, how well do you feel like you get what Shiv sees in Tom, what Tom sees in Shiv, and how that's evolving? Yeah, I mean, I've always just, um, Matthew and I have always, like, just trusted in and, and evolved with the writing, but 
a lot of it, I think, is um, is fun to discover in the moment as well. To to sort of go, oh, that, that that that's that's who they are as well. Okay, great. Like, there's something that I like being, uh, I like re- having the character remain a bit permeable and and flexible. That the um, that we can sort of change our minds about something or have it develop and evolve and in a natural way. And I think you know, certainly after after the, having them. You, they changed their relationship by getting married and and he's now a part of the family and that I think for a long time was his objective to to get into this family though I don't know if you're ever a Roy unless you're born into the family but um, I think that's what he's gonna have to find out but um it's you know working with Matthew as well it's just enormously fun and and satisfying to be able to change and grow and evolve these characters together if I'd asked you on day one what it was that Shiv saw in Tom, what would you have answered then? And would it be the same answer if I asked you now? That's a great question. Would have been Shiv uh, saw, no, I mean, similar, similar kind of thing. I think Shiv saw Safe Harbor in Tom. I think she saw somebody who was um, a, a picture of strength and, and uh, warmth and um, support. And uh, those things, though though they are there, maybe I think as 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 the relationship has evolved and as Shiv is growing as a as a woman and changing you know careers and and uh, aligning herself with her family more, those are things that maybe she needs more of in different ways. Um, needs to like find different elements of Tom to to satisfy her and her in the relationship with her. Does she respect him? Yeah, d- definitely. Yes, definitely. I, well, <laughs> 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 no, couldn't <laughs> be that hard to answer. Hmm? Uh, I think she respects it. <laughs> has she? Has she always? Always? Because sometimes it feels as if she's maybe treating him a little bit like a child, and then other times you get these glimpses of the other side. Totally, but I think she's 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 the kind of person who doesn't like being vulnerable, and it's those kinds of people who then often uh, belittle and and uh, treat people, they infantilize people and treat them as children because they want to constantly be above. They want to you know, constantly twist the power in their favor. That's just the description you want to hear about your marriage, I think. Right? <laughs> the worst. <laughs> I think a better question is, are they friends? And I don't know. That's the question. I don't know. I think she knows that he's an asshole. Like, I don't think she knows she's, you know, he's a killer and, yeah, he can. She's not un, un, unaware of his uh, career reputation, I think. And, you know, he, he would have had to have been good at his job to get this far so far anyway. Um, but are they friends? Do they like hanging out and watching TV? I don't know. I mean, and looking at the season with, the, you know, the family so obviously trying to figure out which side of the coin you fall on but between Kendall and Logan, how will we see that impact? Shiv and Tom, I mean, could they wind up being on, on different sides of, of the coin here? I mean, I think everyone in this season is really having to question who they are. And and for Shiv and Tom, that then comes into who they are as a as a couple and who they are in their marriage. And and that's something that I just don't think the Roy's like doing. They don't like the camera being pointed at them and having to answer answer questions as, you know, deep as that. Kendall does. Um, but you know, like Shiv doesn't want to have to ask the question who she is and who is who is she in her marriage. Um, but that's where the fun lies. Yeah. And part of the fun, too, uh, at, at least on the critical side of it is, you know, look, the show won an, an Emmy for Best Drama, but a lot of critics, including Dan here, uh, see it as a comedy. What, what is it for you? Like, how do you do you in the cast talk about which what, 
if it is, is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Like, where do you fall? I mean, isn't, isn't life a comedy, even when we're like dealing with death as well? Like, you know, I think, I think it, I would say that it is definitely a comedy, but it's, it's not without drama or dramatic moments. Right. So it's, it's, it's life <laughs> like in, in some ways as well. Like, don't we wish we could all like just come up with insults like that, like the Roy's do. And, and part of the fun for us is like managing to find a way to fold them in, to make them feel natural, make them feel like they're part of our daily life and dialogue. But you can't get away from the fact that that still you know, sits in the world of comedy. Uh, it's just heightened with and, and supported with this great foundation of drama. You've, talked a couple times about kind of trusting in the script and, and how that has to be kind of your lodestar or whatever. When you get a script, how good is your sense of how trustworthy Shiv is being in any given scene? Because I feel like that can vary sometimes five to ten times per episode. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I mean, I think she's always, she well, she's fairly upfront with the person she's talking like I, I i i what i appreciate about shiv is that she's not uh she doesn't lie to someone's face she twists the truth to be uh more beneficial to herself or the person she's talking to but she's not um she's not necessarily lying which i i like i mean with the, the same with kira in in season nine season two episode nine she, what she's saying is not not untruthful what she's saying is like <laughs> it's it's bad but it's not she is saying something fairly it's up to you you should you should you can make the decision for yourself here's all the information here's a here's a uh basically a marketing pitch for the thing you no one's telling you because they, they want you to do something else but here's another side to the story you can do what you want but this is all the information she's crafting that information and i and i and i like how how she does that so is she untrustworthy <laughs> yeah, probably in some ways, but, but also she's also very, you know, she, she's not, you can't trust in her, but, uh, she still has a trustworthiness, you know, like, <laughs> well, how good have you gotten over three seasons of playing her at understanding where those layers are operating? Because I can't imagine that the script tells you, okay, the text is this, the subtext is this, and then this. So how how good are you these days of knowing what's happening in her brain? Yeah, and how much do you know going in? Like, do you know what the... Like, do you get the scripts for the entire season? Like, does Jesse walk you through, like, oh, here's the end, here's Shiv's end point? No, I, I mean, I've done it differently each season where uh, first season I knew nothing, second season... no. Yeah, the first season I knew a little bit. Second season I knew nothing. And uh, this season, I mean, and that was quite quite the shock then to come to the end of season two and go, you're kidding me. What? That's what? Hang on. Um, and this season I knew a little bit, but to be honest, in the shooting of it, you kind of forget it all. And it's not, I don't find the, <laughs> the um, I don't find, I haven't found the plot points useful in terms of um, pitching the trajectory. Uh, the the scenes themselves and the, the the dynamic between the characters, as you said before, like you know, different dynamics with different people, they're the ones that tend to be the 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 way markers. They're the ones that tend to like dictate how 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 Shiv is developing, I guess. 
Well, how does Jesse sort of explain to you what the core, the, the core goal for Shiv is going to be at any point, the sort of the thing that you're aiming at at all times? I mean, it would be, I, I don't know, he, he, at the beginning of the, the season, we, we went for a walk and, and he told me the things that were going to happen in like in broad brushstrokes. And I guess like he, he, he did say that, you know, the thrust of the season for Shiv would need to be uh, wondering whether she wants to back her dad or um, wants to back Kendall. And, and that's, in a way, that's like the first setup for the first, it's in the trailer, you know, like, that I can't, I can't really use that to uh, other than like come back to that as like a bit of a compass point. Uh, but using that over the whole of the season, that's not going to um, I'm not going to be able to use that to set things up, you know, long term. That's just like in the moment coming back to that North North Point, you know, but yeah. And so instead, what do you do if you don't have the concrete thing? And, and, and do you like working without that kind of net as an actor? Yeah, I like it. I like it. I, I, I wouldn't have thought that I would like it, but um, I think you know, when you, when you've got an ensemble and you've got an ensemble like this, there is a net just, just naturally. And, um, most of what I've found as the character has been informed by what everybody else is doing around me, you know? And, and part of it is it like, you know, even to the point where I have an Australian accent, I would have to improvise in an American accent. I'm not comfortable today improvising in an American accent, uh, you know, right at the beginning of the seasons in season one, I'm going to shut up for this moment. And then it's like, then it develops and becomes clear to me that Shiv is actually a person who keeps her mouth shut all the, not all the time, but is more likely to, of the two options, be the observer. Um, and those, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a mess of influences in that sense. Is, is that a thing that bonds you and Matthew together? The, the having to improvise in outside of your native accents and all? Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to be thinking in Australian and talking in American. You want to be thinking in American. And that's a really strange twit like that. That's a real twist in your, in your brain. Yeah. Uh, so you've talked about how so much working around so much of the cast is, helps influence everything. But, you know, obviously after Holly Hunter in season two, you've got some great guest stars lined up uh, for season three, Adrian Brody, Alexander Skarsgård, Sonal Lathan, among others. How do their characters kind of shake up the status quo of the season? Oh, I mean, it's kind of great just getting new blood in, right? It's like you get you get a new you get someone new to play with. Um, and I think in some ways it's kind of intimidating coming into a group that does feel like a family because we relate to each other similarly to our characters in a very like you know in the loving way, not the um, not the horrible sort of Roy way, but. Uh, you know, you really like when when you have new blood coming in, you you, you want to sort of like rise up to the challenge as well, and 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 they're always going to bring new new perspectives and fresh eyes, and and uh, yeah, I loved that. And with Sana, like developing a uh, a history of of a friendship that might have happened in some ways that we'll you know we'll know about or we'll develop in future episodes or whatever. Um, just to discover more about Shiv through her friendships and relationships with other women, that for me has been interesting because we don't really see her friendships with other women. You've had some incredible viral moments on the show. Obviously, Kendall's L to the OG. My, I, my initials are LG. I love that scene. Um, and uh, Logan's bore on the floor come to mind. Um, is there a comparable moment this season? There is. There is a moment uh, that Shiv gets uh, coming up where she, a great moment of catharsis. And um, I imagine that will be, I don't want to pitch myself too highly here, but it's kind of out of character. And so I, I imagine that, um, yeah, that that, that that will be uh, something similar. 
Uh, it sounds awesome. Now, I know we're not, because thanks to the pandemic, people are not wandering around out in the streets quite as much interacting with people and strangers as they used to. But I'm, I'm curious, do you get the feeling that audiences are responding differently to Shiv as things have been going along? And when people actually encounter you, how do they respond to you other than, oh, my God, you're Australian? I mean, I get it. I get that a lot. Uh, but I, I mean, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't, I don't know. Um, I have been mostly in Australia so during this pandemic and therefore mostly behind a mask as well. And, uh, <laughs> in a hat, um, and I have not really ever had much to uh, deal with in terms of, um, being noticed or, or accosted on the street in any sort of way. I mean, Melbourne's been in lockdown for the last two years, basically. So I haven't lived in public. Uh, so if I seem rusty on, on social interactions, that'll be why. <laughs> so maybe someone will recognize me and I'll be like, what? You know, I won't know what to do. Yeah. Who, who in the cast has the funniest stories of people kind of accosting them in public? I, I don't think Nick can really walk around without being noticed, let alone being famous and not being noticed. You know, he's, he's six foot seven. He's, he's got no hope. Um, I think he probably has the most interesting for sure. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Succession season three premieres this Sunday, October 17th on HBO. Number four. Up next, instead of our showrunner spotlight, you just heard our interview with Sarah Snook. This is a succession follow-up. With the series returning for its highly anticipated third season after being off the air for more than two years, we're dedicating an entire segment. Think of this as Critics Corner Plus, Dan, to hear your thoughts on season three. So, Dan, let, let's start with the end of season two as a quick refresher. What did you think of the way season two ended with Kendall taking on Logan yet again? I thought that it was where that season was going, and I thought that it put the show in a position where it would have to kind of change the battle lines. And I think that that's what the third season really is. I think it is probably more clear than the second season, maybe a little less so than the first, because the first season, if you'll recall, began with uh, Logan's stroke. And so there was a lot of machinations within the family at that point, the second season was putting the pieces in motion for that testimony that Kendall gives at the end of the second season finale. And then the third season is is tearing the family to bits. It's it's straight up civil war. And that's, I think, what people have been looking for, because honestly, anytime you can get any of these characters in a room together insulting each other, that's where succession lives and breathes. And I feel as if there's an awful lot of that in this season because the the stakes are just so high and the stakes of any little decision, both for uh, Waystar Royco, but for the characters as well, everybody is figuring out where the pieces are on the chessboard and who they want to align with. And it's really, it's a lot of fun to watch. I've, I've seen seven of nine episodes. Uh, people don't need to worry. I'm really not going to, I'm not going to spoil anything of even mid-size here. I'm going to keep this as spoiler light as humanly possible, but I was very happy with these episodes. But nine episodes, is that just what's been sent to screeners? Because the season three is still 10 episodes, I believe right? it's I believe it's nine. I think we've, and we've been, only been sent seven. So, uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's a somewhat shortened because of 
all of that stuff. At some point I looked and was disappointed that having seen episodes uh, one through seven, A, I was going to have to wait nearly two months to get more episodes. Yes, poor TV critics. Wah, wah, wah. Uh, <laughs> totally, totally understand. Among the things I can bitch about on this podcast today, that's going to be the least sympathetic of them. Uh, but it also means that there are only, I, I really think there are only two more after what I've seen. And so there's a lot of escalation going on. And the the seventh episode in particular, again, spoiling absolutely nothing, it it ties your ties your guts in a bow and yeah, I was I was nervous for a full episode nonstop because that's one of the things that the show does so well. You know, binging this show, many people have done it and many people find it pleasant. I love this show. I find it tough to watch more than a couple episodes at a stretch just because it's really, really stressful. It's there, there. It's a lot. It's not a a light show. It's a show that requires that you pay a tremendous amount of attention to what the characters are saying. You pay a tremendous amount of attention to what's happening. You know how people are reacting in the ba backgrounds. It's a lot of stuff that you have to be really, really connected to, and a lot of subtext. A lot of subtext. A lot of references where you have to try figuring out where they're going with them. A lot of family history that you have to try to remember if it's something that we found out about on the show before, or if it's just something being dropped for the first time. It's a lot. And yet watching these seven episodes, which I guess I did probably over two to three days, it was a total pleasure and an exhaustion. <laughs> yeah. So Considering the show last aired in October 2019, has there been any kind of time that has passed on screen or does season two really pick up instantly? No, because season two picks up, uh, season three picks up almost immediately. It's uh, basic. It's basically immediate aftermath and following up. There are definitely places where it seems as if a couple weeks here and there have been jumped over to allow for things to actually settle a tiny bit and for additional entrenchment to happen. But it it picks up. Immediately, it picks up with the characters rushing off in their respective directions. Basically, it's like the bell to end the second round rang as we ended the second season. Everyone retreated to their respective corners, and that's where we pick up in the third season. So now you've got the battle lines drawn again. It's Kendall versus Logan again. How does the season change the dynamic between number one boy and dear old dad? I think it's a, it comes down to a lot of what people were thinking as they watched the finale, which comes down to when did Kendall make the decision to do what he did? Did Logan know what he was going to do? Was Logan's reaction to what Kendall did horror? Was it pride? Was it rage? What was it? And I think that a lot of this season is still trying to figure that out because we still, it's always intriguing to see at any given moment which of Logan's kids he respects, who he thinks actually could be his successor someday, who he's manipulating himself, if there's anyone manipulating him. These are always the questions. And I think that we see a lot of that continuing to play out this season because the thing that Kendall did at the end of last season, it's irreparable, whether it's a thing he can back track from somewhat. Maybe he can. Logan certainly hopes so. Everyone hopes that there's a normal that can be returned to. But I don't think that Kendall thinks he can return to normal. And I don't think probably on a practical level. Once once this has all been said on national TV and once it's in the newspapers, you, you can't go back. 
And so that's a lot of what this season is, is once you've reached the point of no return, how do you how do you respond? How do you respond on a corporate level? How do you respond on a familial level on a show like Succession? Are those the same thing? Are they different things? Um, and yeah, it, it comes down to always what the fun game of the show is, is who's actually the smartest Roy, who's the stupidest Roy, who's the most conniving Roy, who's the most trustworthy or untrustworthy Roy, and what's so great about the show. And this was a question I asked Sarah in this interview, is that the answer is almost never the same from episode to episode. It's almost never the same from character interaction to character interaction. Uh, one character who might have the ability to to manipulate and tease and get the goat of another character might be completely powerless in the face of another character. I don't remember the last time that there was a show that was so good at these interpersonal dynamics and it's so many different variations on these interpersonal dynamics. It's really what the show does best is that you see anyone enter a room and you immediately have to, in your own mind, sitting on your couch, you have to itemize how they respond to every single person in the room. And I, I always find that a lot of fun trying to go back and remember, you know, who might actually love whom, who really truly hates whom. And the answer is almost never the same episode to episode, which I find tremendously fun. Yeah, so, you know, Sarah just teased that there was a big viral moment this season involving her character, Shiv. Have you already seen it, and what can you say without spoiling anything? I, I feel pretty confident that I've seen it. I feel pretty confident that it's a moment that will be heavily uh, gift for the world to to see, whether it's necessarily bore on the floor or L to the OG level. I'm not necessarily sure, because you can't predict those things. That's that's, And if you could... That would mean that you were pandering to the viral moment gods, and I don't think anything has ever <laughs> been accomplished for the good by doing that. And I think that Jesse Armstrong and the other writers on Succession are way too smart to do that. But I, I feel like it's probably in the seventh episode, uh, and that will be all I will say on that subject. I mean, what, what I will say is that um, of the seven I've seen, there is both the most tense and suspenseful episode that I've watched of television in the past however many months, 10 months, this year, and the funniest episode of television that I've watched in this year. And I continue to, as always, love how those two things coexist on succession in a way that they really don't exist on most shows on TV. Which brings me to my next point. So you have, more than anyone that I that who writes about succession, have maintained that this is a comedy Having seen seven of the nine, we think, episodes of the season, is that still your, is it still a comedy in your eyes? Oh, 100%. It is, it is absolutely, especially given what the landscape looks like. Like, is Ted Lasso really a comedy at this point? Once they're doing 50 minute episodes where everybody is being sad and crying and backstabbing each other, or is Ted Lasso effectively Basically, at this point, a comedy on the same level as Succession, maybe a hair turned up to the lighter side. Uh, yes, no, to, to me, without any question, um, even when Succession is twisting my guts and making me nervous for everybody, it is still making me laugh hard more than anything else. And in our landscape, if The Flight Attendant is a comedy, Succession is surely still a dark comedy, but HBO is not going to suddenly decide to resubmit it because that would require sending it to 
an obscure, mysterious Emmy deciding council that would have to get over it being an hour long and decide that it was actually a drama. And that's the same council that determined that, for example, sex education was a drama, but that continued to let Shameless be a comedy even after Shameless largely ceased to be funny. So, yeah, I, to, to me unquestionably 100% it is a it is a dark comedy it is a dark satire it is a dark satire that has shakespearean dramatic elements heaven only knows but if you ask me to describe it i would describe it first and foremost as a dark dark comedy number 5 up next we wrap things up with the critics corner and outside of succession this week's other major new launches include Amazon's update of I Know What You Did Last Summer, Fear the Walking Dead, and Hightown Return on AMC and Stars, respectively. AMC launches Queens, a hip-hop drama version of Peacock's Girls 5 Eva, and HBO Max has its What Happened Brittany Murphy docuseries. Dan, what else is worth checking out this week besides Succession? Oh, nothing. <laughs> great that was-, that was a great episode we'll wrap things up <laughs> no there uh, there is a strong strong sense that the networks fully recognized that basically succession is the only show in town for this week and a lot of what is premiering this week is somewhere between truly horrible and uh, let's just say a mixed bag of niche value. I mean, on the truly horrible front, uh, HBO Max's documentary, What Happened Brittany Murphy, is just excruciatingly dismal. It is it is a badly made documentary. It is it is trashy, schlocky television that has the bad luck to A, be on a streaming service that at least on the surface, we think has certain standards. <laughs> this might prove that maybe they don't have quite the same filtration system that we would have thought they did. Um, so there you go. I mean, Casey Blaze has talked about how he saw HBO Max as having the potential to be a sort of wider net, and that would allow HBO to continue to be what HBO is as a separate thing. This Brittany Murphy documentary devalues what HBO Max is, and so someone needed to think about whether they wanted to air it. It's It's... It's a bad hard copy inside edition tawdry schlockfest about what happened to Brittany Murphy without having answers and without having enough people available to actually talk about it in any level. If you were hoping that this was going to be Brittany Murphy's version of the recent run of Britney Spears documentaries kind of reclaiming her image and talking about basically blaming the media and blaming our culture, as it were, for, you know, what happened for the tragedy that befell her. It's there, but it's like five minutes, and it's really much more about Simon Monjack, her con man husband, who is the least interesting con man ever. There are better things out there about celebrities from this period. There are better things uh, about con men, and Clueless is available to stream, and you can celebrate just what a a, a really transcendent talent Brittany Murphy had the chance to be and unfortunately was not. So that's the worst thing this week. Um, I would say that Paramount Plus's Guilty Party is better, but not significantly better. It's now Kate Beckinsale's second TV series in three years, I think, to come out without anybody noticing on any level, which 
either speaks to bad television choices on her part or to people liking Kate Beckinsale in certain things, but not what she keeps being offered on television. It is a also a dark comedy, but a dark comedy that shows how difficult what Succession does is because it's about a disgraced journalist who sees a chance to save her career by basically preying on an unjustly incarcerated black woman and the blending of of humor and drama is dismally uneven it's uh it's a little bit sad i watched i watched two episodes and i will surely watch no more um our colleague angie han wrote a great and very appropriately dismissive review and you should check it out she got a lot of the things that this show she got a lot right about what this show gets very wrong so yeah definitely not a thing to do i I was somewhat more interested honestly in amazon's update of i know what you did last summer which uh to some small degree reclaims lois duncan's book from the slasher trappings of the movie which people you know like whether they like the two sequels or not the two sequels are just awful but i honestly kind of liked the first movie but it is a slasher movie this is it has a body count but it's not gory it's much more sexual and kinky and profane than it is violent if you know if if you've got problems with violence but like (laughs) but like sexual kinkiness and profanity this might be your cup of tea um it has it has a twist it has a kind of a purpose in explaining how they're approaching what is the same same shape of a story, but a different story in the same way that the Kevin Williamson script for the 1997 movie in no way was actually a literal adaptation of Lois Duncan's book. This isn't either. It has the same basic premise, group of friends, uh, summer after their senior year in high school are responsible for a death. And a year later, someone begins to hint that they knew what they did last summer. And, uh, it goes from there and it goes from there in some unpredictable ways that I think are interesting, but that I can't discuss because even though they're featured at the end of the pilot, they're, you know, they're, they're spoilery. So I wasn't in my review able to discuss exactly what the premise is. And that's too bad because the premise was responsible for both what I found most interesting and most disappointing about the show. So, oh, well, I, but I do think it's interesting. And so, and so many reboots, aren't interesting. They don't have an angle. They don't have an approach. And so I, you know, at least I thought someone and Sarah Goodman is the creator here had an idea. And so I'm willing to give credit for that. And it's, it's very watchable. It is definitely trashy, but that's kind of what it's supposed to be. The young cast is very, very, very mixed in terms of uh, their quality. Um, Some of them are really not actors at all and others of them are fine it's uh you know not really all that many people you're going to recognize from anything unless you're really big fans of instagram i feel like a couple of the stars have like half a million or a million instagram followers and virtually no credits on their imdb page so that lets you know where they came from uh so yeah it's interesting i'm not gonna tell you that if (laughs) that if you don't like the lois duncan book and you don't like slasher things and you don't like the movie that you want to check this out because it's a full reinvigoration or whatever. On the other hand, it's better than Peacock's One of Us is Lying. So there's that, you know, all, all things are rel- uh, relative. And finally, you mentioned Queens. Uh, so far, they've only sent out 
one episode and yeah, your, your description of it as a hip hop drama version of girls five Eva is pretty much <laughs> is pretty much exactly what it is. And in some cases, very, very, very literally almost to the point where you kind of wish that maybe someone had seen that girls five Eva came out last spring and said, okay, we're going to make a couple tweaks to the pilot. It is more serious, but it has a lot in common with <laughs> with Girls 5 Eva. It's definitely not as funny. It The songs are much more attempting to be realistic, and I think it actually achieves that fairly well, which is the kind of thing that you can do when you have a cast that includes people like Eve and Brandy and Notori Naughton. Uh, you know, these are these are people who, if you put them in front of a mic, they can do exactly what you want them to do. Um, and I thought, I thought it was entertaining, engaging. I thought the soundtrack was was terrific. Uh, has a couple really good people in supporting roles who I wish were around more. Ron Rico Lee, who was one of my favorite parts of Survivor's Remorse, is a guest star here, and I don't get the impression he's around forever. But I really like him, so glad to see him here. And the screener that we got was followed by a This Season on Queens. And I think that's where you can see them attempting to steer out of the Girls 5 Eva imitation space and more into kind of a, a soapier semi-Empire version of this. It, it looks as if there's some big melodrama and drama coming up. And I don't know that the scenes from the rest of the season looked like they were really a continuation of the show I just watched a pilot for. And so the fact that I liked the pilot means that <laughs> maybe I'm not so sure that I like where they're going, but you, you got to try to differentiate. Uh, but yeah, and entertaining enough. Um, there, there are definitely some places where I feel like probably being on a broadcast network hinders it, like they're dealing with the world of hip hop and it feels as if they're having to be a little bit cleaner than they probably would have been if they could have been on literally anywhere else or not <laughs> um, on a disney platform or not on a disney platform i would i would say all things considered it's not any <laughs> it's definitely as adult as you can get in that time slot in broadcast on any of the five networks uh but yeah, I, I I liked it. I didn't I didn't love it, but I really liked the cast, and I think there are very good moments to it. And again, soundtrack is fantastic. So, you know, of the shows that aren't Succession, that's definitely the one I'm recommending most. But that's because several of these things are really really bad. So once again, though, Succession is where it's at, y'all. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. That feels like a good place to wrap things up, this time for real. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We are always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Let us know what's working, what isn't working, what you want to hear more of, etc. If you have specific questions, of course, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.